About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles... It is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. As we come to your word this morning, Father, we do ask for your help. We know that we are weak, our minds are often distracted, and we have important and weighty things before us. We know also there are things hard to understand, and so we look to you, our teacher. We ask that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. It's always apparent at Christ Church that we're at a difficult topic when I begin a sermon with a qualification. And that qualification is simply this, that if anything today is unsettling to you, my time is always your time. Please just simply send me an email or give me a phone call, and I'd be delighted to get together with you uh, to speak about these things, to talk about the difficulties. But we will be working through one of the more 
strenuous passages in all of Scripture today, uh, the end of Hebrews chapter 5 into chapter 6. We will get to do this again in a few short weeks in chapter 10, uh, where we have an equally strenuous, strenuous passage. But it is one of the most difficult because it startles and often bewilders Christians and it begs important and demanding practical and theological questions. People will inevitably ask, is my salvation something secure or is it something that I can lose? Due to my own fickleness and unfaithfulness, have I fallen away? Am I one of these people in this passage that Hebrews 6 is discussing? Is there, in fact, an unpardonable sin? And have I committed it, if there is one? These are all natural, very difficult questions that is the burden this morning that we have to answer, that we have to look at squarely and not ignore as if they're not there. These are the types of questions that our passage provokes. And some Christians ignore, avoid the issues by largely ignoring Hebrews 6, not wanting to deal with it, while others become crippled by anxious concerns. And the passage actually doesn't bear much fruit in their life. It creates fear. So the question for us this morning is, how can we profitably read and appropriate these verses? What does that look like? But in order to do so, it's essential that we listen carefully to three things God is saying across the passage. We must consider our weakness. And then secondly, we must hear a warning and be able to absorb that. And finally, we must receive his encouragement. So first, let's consider our weakness. In chapter 5, verse 11, running into chapter 6 and verse 3, the pastor who has written this letter... He is unknown to us, but he explains that he has so much to say about Jesus. We've had five full chapters in which he has filled us with the knowledge of who God is in Jesus Christ. That before the foundations of the world, he was appointed the heir of all things. That he is the image of God, the exact imprint of his nature. That he is the great high priest who's entered into the holy place to make atonement for us. There is so much to say that the applications of this are infinitely deep. There is a well here that we can never exhaust. There are riches that we can never fully spend or understand. So much to say. But then you'll note what he says in verse 11. About this we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. It's not difficult to explain because it's too complicated. It's not difficult to explain because it's too academic. No, rather, it's difficult to explain because the congregation had become dull or slow or sluggish in their hearing. They were no longer listening in the way that they had in former days. They were becoming indifferent and apathetic to the things of Jesus. In verse 12, we find that he explains that they should have all been teachers. That they had been sufficiently taught over a series of years. They had tremendous exposure. But now they needed to be taught in the basic foundations of the faith once again. 
He says that they needed milk, not solid food. We would say they were failing to thrive. They were victims of arrested development. They were now devolving to ask questions about the foundational principles of the faith, and they were wanting in some way to renegotiate those things. You see an encouragement and an exhortation in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. They were in need of instruction once again in these foundational teachings, and three things are here mentioned. The first is the negative side of Christian conversion. It is repentance from dead works in which we turn away from the things that we do, our achievements and accomplishments, and we learn to do the positive side, that is to look to God and to yield ourselves to him, to put our faith in God. And then he says they also need instruction in several different practical matters, something that concerned washings, that could be baptism or it could refer to the Old Testament ceremonial law, the laying on of hands, and also final things about resurrection and judgment. And the pastor says to them that they need to leave these things behind. Now, many people have been troubled by that phrase. He says that they are to leave these things behind, and yet he also describes them as a foundation. And so it's important to understand what he means by that. When he says to leave them behind, he doesn't mean that we are to discard them. The truth of repentance and faith in God, and then all the things that follow, are not left behind as we mature in the Christian life. Rather, they are a foundation that we build upon. And so he says we must be carried forward. We must go on to maturity, advancing upon this foundation. Now, here's what's critical for us. These early Christians were going back to the foundational principles after a strong start, and they were going back and wanting to negotiate these beliefs. Now, this happened to them, and we are exposed to those same spiritual dynamics. We've seen in the book of Hebrews that there is a spiritual drift that can take place. That drift then advances into a dullness, a torpor, a sluggishness, in which we're not listening. And then in chapter 3, we found that it results in a hardness, a spiritual turning against God. And those are the dynamics that the pastor addresses in this congregation. For many different reasons, they were growing dull. And they were no longer captivated by the things of Jesus. Other things were captivating them. And we have to accept that we're of the same kind of frame. And we have the same faith. And we live in the side of all of the same weakness. That in all of our trials and in all of our temptations, that in all of our disappointments, in all of our difficulties that we endure, in our sufferings and also in the fears that we experience, that we too can grow weary we become dull and we lose our interest in Jesus. We begin to drift away from him. And so we have to hear that dynamic carefully. We must recognize that it applies to us. That this drift does begin gradually. 
And then it moves into a dullness. And in that dullness, we begin to question core convictions of our faith. And then in chapter 10, we'll also find that we pull away from the community of faith. We isolate ourselves. And then we move into a spiritual hardness. It's all fairly predictable on the pastoral side. But we must accept that we're all susceptible to that kind of drift on the experiential level. Now, the second thing that God speaks to in this passage builds on this weakness and susceptibility, that we must hear a warning. This is where we come to verses 4 through 8, and the pastor speaks about where spiritual drift can go, where it takes us when it reaches full flower. And the goal of announcing this warning is to arrest this drift before it does mature. This is why the word is spoken to the congregation, that in the midst of their drift, he wanted to awaken them, to arrest the process that was beginning to unfold. And so he explains the case, and it's a very difficult case, of those who have fallen away from the Christian faith. Now, it's hugely important to point out several things about the words that he says in verse 4. One of them is to note that these were not casual fringe Christians of whom he speaks. Note his description of them. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then fallen away. The description is intensive, and it describes someone who's fully vested inside the Christian community, someone who has publicly confessed their faith in Jesus. They have been enlightened, which was a word commonly in the first century associated with baptism. They have tasted the heavenly gift, a reference, I believe, to taking and participating in the Lord's Supper. They have shared in the Holy Spirit, that is, they've been in the community of faith, in the power of the Spirit, where God's Word is present. They have tasted the goodness of the Word and the powers of the age to come. They have been around and emerged in these realities. They are active members of the church who walk away. And we have to accept the full brunt of what's being said to reach the other side. So how do we understand these type cases? Where someone is deeply informed theologically, and then they decide and they determine that they will no longer follow after Jesus. It is difficult because these people at one time appear to be ardently Christian. They're thoroughly committed. And it is an unfortunate reality one that has plagued the church from its earliest days down to today. It continues to happen. One of the main issues for us is we don't know the human heart and cannot discern all of its motives. And it's impossible for us as a church to discern true faith from what we would call temporary faith. And Jesus helpfully explains these dynamics several different places in the Gospels. But you could turn to Luke 8 where he tells a parable, the parable of the sower. And he describes there the sowing of the seed of the word of God. And it finds root in four different types of soil. The first two types of soil are fairly easy to understand. 
But it is the difference between the third and fourth types of soil where many people get tripped up. Because in the third soil, the seed takes root. It begins to bear fruit, but then it's choked out. It doesn't persevere to maturity. The fourth seed also takes root, but then with patience, it bears fruit over time and perseveres to eternal salvation. And so people naturally ask, what's the difference between these two besides the result and the outcome? And it's essential here to note the difference that's described by Jesus, that saving faith perseveres over time and bears fruit with patience. And so John Calvin creates a category that's helpful and says when we look at the third seed, what we have to note is that this is temporary faith. It's faith that doesn't persevere, and so it's not true faith. It's faith that doesn't make it through time and patience. And we note that at the end of chapter 6, the language of patience and bearing fruit begins to come up, deeply informed by this gospel account, I believe. And so it proves itself to be defective over time. But there's also another difficulty here, because Hebrews 6 also speaks of those not being able to be renewed to repentance. And these are perhaps the most frightening words in all of the book of Hebrews, especially in this portion of the sermon. There is an important qualification here. Because what I want you to note is that when he speaks of a sin in which someone cannot return from, that they cannot find repentance, he's referring back to what Jesus teaches on in Mark chapter 3. And this is what we commonly call the unpardonable sin or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's when someone knows something to be true, like the Pharisees who were around Jesus. They saw him work a miracle, and then they attribute it to something else. And so what's being said here of the one who cannot be renewed in repentance is the one who has hardened their hearts and they stiffen their neck and they go their own way. And please do not be mistaken, they're not asking to come back. They've committed what we call the sin of apostasy. But who is not being spoken of? This passage is not speaking of people who have stumbled their way into an addiction and find themselves lost inside of it. It's not speaking to those who have broken, perhaps, their marital vows in some fashion. It's not speaking of those who dip into the world of pornography, those who struggle to trust God with their money, those who limp along with a hot temper. It's not speaking with those who struggle with the waxing and waning affections of their love for God. No, it's speaking to a specific case. It's speaking to those who, in an intentional deliberate and informed way turn against Jesus Christ and renounce their faith in him. And so that's the essential qualification. Now, as a young college student, I began to study theology and stumbled onto Hebrews 6 and 10. And attending my Presbyterian church, I did not know what to do with these passages. And so my friend and I, we called the pastor and asked if he would go to lunch and talk us through this portion of the Bible. So we got to lunch. It was a great taco place in Greenville, South Carolina, where we would meet him. And 
he began to tell a story. I was slightly surprised because I was prepared for rigorous theological engagement that was going to go way over my head. And he told a story. He had been a missionary in Tunisia for many years. And he said, guys, during that time, there were tremendous trials, there was great difficulty, and I was personally exhausted in many ways. And on the back end of those trials and exhaustion, I began to find a certain spiritual drift taking place, and I was asking questions about the core convictions of my Christian faith. I was an ordained minister. I was a missionary. I was serving God actively, and yet there was a spiritual drift taking place. He said, I came to Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 in my teaching and in my reading, and it was these warnings that arrested me. They alerted me to the fact that there was a drift unfolding. And he then told us and he explained that he didn't want that to be true. And friends, that's the sign of a true and saving faith. That when we're actually disturbed by this warning, when it actually catches us and it alarms us, that's the sign that the warning is taking root and doing the right things. That you say, no, let this not be. Let me go to refuge, to Jesus for refuge. Let me turn there. This is why the warning exists. It is to arrest us in our drift, to awaken us from our slumber, to unstop our clogged ears, to bring us back to Jesus. Inevitably and unfortunately, Every year, I normally learn of another friend, seminarian, who has renounced their faith. It's one of the more difficult aspects, honestly, of pastoral existence, especially when you shared fellowship prayers over the years with friends, and then you learn that they're no longer walking with God and have renounced Jesus. Last year, I received a call from a friend outside of Jacksonville, and he had been struggling for several years with depression and anger. He had been sinned against by the church legitimately. But on the backside of that sin, he was struggling with forgiveness, and there was very little grace to be had. Many people were trying to work with him, and I was just one voice in the chorus, but it's clear that he's holding on to that. He then became less and less frequent at church. He wasn't actively a part of the community. Excuses were made here and there. And then on Facebook, I learned that he had renounced his faith. Just don't do that, okay? <laughs> he was no longer going to confess himself Christian, he announced. It turned out that over that time, as he had slowly drifted, he had then begun to engage in reading certain books from a certain perspective about the Christian faith. Other people who shared his same path kind of outside of an evangelical gospel into another world with other convictions. And so he gained encouragement by that. And when he was asked, why are you denying your faith in Jesus? Of course, he had all the intellectual buttresses. He was ready to argue he wasn't a very big fan when he was asked whether this was really intellectual or whether there was something deeper going on. But friends, this is why the warning exists. 
is that we would carefully consider that, that we would not hastily run in. Because my friend had gone out on the limb and announced himself, no longer interested in Christianity, breaking up his family, ending up all kinds, all kinds of chaos swirling around him. And he hadn't taken time. He hadn't taken the time to process what exactly is going on. Is this intellectual or perhaps is it more emotional? Is there more depth to this? And we all need the warnings. We need the warnings at various places as we drift and meander in our affections for God. We need to hear them seriously and know that they're for our good to capture us. And then we also need this final piece of what God says. We must receive his encouragement. If you follow with me in verse 9, we hear the encouragement. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Many people are jarred by this. After such severe language, he says, no, but I'm convinced of better things about you. And that's what we say here today. We are convinced of better things. Hear the warning. And yes, we're convinced of better things. Because those who are concerned by the warning are the ones that we're convinced of better things for. Those who are indifferent toward the warning are really the ones that are of larger concern. But how exactly can we and can you be sure? One of the things to note here is that assurance is not something that you are just left to yourself to work out. It is something that's worked out also in Christian community. Follow with me in verse 10 as to what is said. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And so how can we be sure? First piece of this is the evidence of fruit in our lives. These Christians had sacrificially served saints who we learn later in the book were imprisoned. And in the first century, when you served someone who was imprisoned, you then identified yourself with them and you exposed yourself to great danger. And so the pastor is telling them, look at the evidence and the fruit of your lives. What direction does it point? It's not going to be perfect. What trajectory does it have? True faith exhibits itself in good works. And the pastor points the people to these to remind them. But the second and stronger argument he presents is found in verses 18 through, 18 through 20 as to how we can be sure that we have to consider our confidence, the basis and the ground of that confidence if you follow with me there, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever and after the order of Melchizedek. Hear the words, sure and steadfast, an anchor for your soul. And friends, when we flee to him for refuge, 
He is that trust and he is that surety. He is that confidence. And the point for us is that there is no confidence anywhere else. And so when we flee to Jesus, that is what the warnings are designed to do. To push us in that direction constantly. Not so that we look at one transaction that took place in our lives, perhaps when we were young and committed ourselves to Christ, and then somehow we're done with him and it doesn't matter. No, but to push us constantly and continuously, that we convert and that we follow after him, and then that we continuously listen to him and follow him in the way. This is the goal, that we listen carefully. And so these words in Hebrews 6 can be heard in a way that unsettles you, that startles you, and that frightens you. Or it can be heard perhaps in a completely different light. A word that encourages and affirms and secures you about the real basis of salvation and how you know that seed has been planted in good soil. It is that tenderness that knows that we will press on to maturity by the grace of God, if God permits, says in verse 3. This is the dependence of the Christian. This is the true goal of the warning. It is the true goal of understanding our weakness. And so let us rest ourselves in him. Run to him for refuge. Let's pray. Father, in the midst of difficult verses, difficult topics that are certainly personal and apply across our lives, we need your help. And we ask, God, that you will give us the strange encouragement that comes from these warnings, that we would flee to Jesus, that our confidence would be locked up in him, that he is the anchor of our soul, and that our salvation is sure and secure in him. And so arrest us and awaken us from any drift that goes on in our hearts and our minds, and may we be drawn afresh to you today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.